right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day. By your grace and mercy, we're still here. You have a plan for us. We thank you for each day and help us not take any day that we're alive for granted. Every day is truly a gift from you to participate in your plan and to bring you glory before we're with you forever and ever. Most of all, Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to take our place so that as sinners we could be rescued from the condemnation we deserve and we can spend eternity with you because you justified us by grace. Father, please bless this message. Have your spirit guide us and teach us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay, once again, why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 32. So Sunday's message uh, was focused on the amazing grace of God at the same time without compromising God's justice. Uh, it was a beautiful time to, as Pastor put it at the end of the message, to pause. Uh, God kind of had, had us pause on Sunday to appreciate and try to take in the magnitude of His grace, which we, 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 can, we can get to new levels of that our whole lives in this, in this world. We'll never fully gather and understand His grace, and we can always, when we take the time to humbly dwell on it, see a new uh, aspect of it, if you will, or the greater uh, magnitude of it. But that was really Sunday, um, jumping out to us how God's justice is always in play. God's justice must always be a part of the gospel, even really to give it effectively. Um, it's the very reason we have a need of salvation in the first place, is that God, God's justice needs to be satisfied. So, what lets us properly give the gospel, which we've been learning, is to present the problem statement to somebody. And that's something missing in a lot of churches, was missing in um, our own church, I think, years ago. Not properly presenting the problem state statement. In other words, there is a problem. If there wasn't a problem, we wouldn't need to be saved. So we're all sinners. We have no way to make it up to God on our own. And whatever words you use to present that problem statement to people, it, you know, let the Spirit guide you. But that's the principle. We're all sinners, and we have no way to make it up to God on our own. As Pastor mentioned Sunday, how about starting your gospel presentation with Romans 3.23, which says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me tell you the good news. But first of all, you've got to understand, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Until people admit their sin and drop their belief that their own goodness is sufficient or possibly sufficient, they're going to be trapped in a lie. 
So just think about that. When you're presenting the gospel and you, you know, want to, you don't want to be confrontational. You don't want to mention sin for some reason, right? Because you don't want to make an enemy possibly, right? You just want to mention, you know, cut to the chase, go to the end. Here's how you get to heaven, right? Well, you're doing people a disservice because until people admit their sin or their sinfulness and drop their belief that their own goodness might be sufficient, they're going to be trapped in a lie. They're going to be trapped in darkness, in deception. And obviously you don't want that for anybody you care about. So as good evangelists for our Lord, we are to help release them from that lie. And that's why we're being so equipped in this church lately on the gospel. God is preparing us, and he's coming at it from all different angles, isn't he? The gospel and how to present it or, you know, what needs to be said or not said. He's coming at it from all different angles because whether you realize it or not, the Holy Spirit is, is training you. He's getting it all in your soul, gradually stirring the pot. You know, he's, he's helping you... Um, understand it. He's helping you make sense of it all and put the pieces together so that when the time comes to give the gospel, you're going to be that much better equipped. You're not even going to really have to think about it. You're just going to know the principles. And that's what God wants us to do is like know him, right? Know him, know his gospel. And when you get to know him, it's easy to, you know, say the right things. So that's what God has us. He's, you know, training us from a lot of directions so that we're equipped for anything, pretty much. So again, as good evangelists for our Lord, we are to help release people from the lie. Otherwise, they won't truly turn to Christ for their salvation and be converted. The worst thing would be for someone to think they're saved because they grew up in a church that mentions Jesus Christ. So now they're under this false hope or false security when they haven't even dropped the fact that they're not, they're, they think they're still good enough to do it on their own, right, or to earn their way. So what Jesus is that they believe in if they think they're good enough to earn their way to heaven? Sounds like a different one to me. And, and if anything, it's not relying on him like saving faith means, trusting in Christ to save your life. It's not doing that. It's having him on the side just in case you fall, but I'm going to stand on my own because I'm a good person. So we don't want people to stay in the lie. They're not going to be converted unless they face the fact of this sinfulness and their need for the Savior. As we heard on Sunday, people need to drop their God complexes. And that wasn't the word that was used, but that, that's kind of what came out. And people may not call themselves God, but somehow... They think they're in control of their own destiny, which is really the same thing, if you think about it. So everyone, a, a lot of people, have this God complex, mostly people trapped in religion and into some kind of a system where they think they can um, please God on their own merits. So they think they control their own destiny. So on the board, we saw on Sunday, God is immutable. A person will never concede God's sovereignty if they are their own God. A person will never concede God's sovereignty 
if they are their own God. What did we just say a minute ago? People may not call themselves God, but somehow they think they're in control of their own destiny. If you control your own destiny, or you think you do, control is sovereignty, isn't it? So these people think they control their own destiny. They're believing in their own sovereignty, at least to some degree. They're not resting on the sovereignty of God. They're not throwing themselves at the mercy of the court. They're like, I think I'm going to make my own argument. Because I've done this, this, and this. And I know I've done that. But did you see what I've done? The good stuff? So there's, this, there's not a true reliance on God. There's not a surrender to his sovereignty. He's the one in control of everyone's destiny. So again, on the board, a person will never concede God's sovereignty if they are their own God. God is not interested in fitting into the confines of man's preferences for himself. God is immutable, unchanging. So instead of trying to change God, one must simply surrender to God as he is. And this includes realizing God is a God of justice and he's sovereign. In other words, God has the final say in all things as the king of the universe. Instead of trying to change God, one must simply surrender to God as he is. And that submission or surrender to God's sovereignty prepares the soil for true faith in Christ. We spent some time Sunday on our Lord's calling in his life on earth. And it was pretty clear and simple. We concluded that he came to save mankind. Not much more than that. That was the reason he became a man and came to earth. He came to save mankind. He said it in his own words. The Father said it. The Spirit said it. All throughout the Word of God. One example of what Jesus said was in John chapter 3 on the board. Verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's why he was sent. Jesus' own words. He was sent not to judge the world, but to save the world. On Sunday, we established from Scripture that each member of the Trinity is united on this purpose, this clear purpose of Christ in his incarnation. On the board, God is unity. I had someone ask me the other day, um, kind of like innocently, what is Trinity? What does Trinity mean? And it's really this on the board. God is unity. Tri means three. Unity means one, right? So all three persons of the Godhead testify that Jesus' mission on earth was consistent with his own words. As in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We see here his simple, pure, and beautiful purpose on earth. Nothing more simple, pure, or beautiful than that statement in that verse. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And may we never forget, he's passed that purpose on to us, his followers. 
Seek and save the lost. The Great Commission. On Thursday and on Sunday, we read a familiar passage about the conversion of a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus, which precedes the Lord's statement on his purpose in Luke 19.10. So let's review that passage quickly. Uh, turn again to Luke 19, verse 1. And the Spirit's going to ask us to take a little different um, tact into this as we read it. Luke 19.1. Ask yourself, as we read this passage, what you see in Zacchaeus' attitude. Okay? What do you see in Zacchaeus' attitude? Look at verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped. You can just picture Zacchaeus stopping in front of the Lord. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give him back four times as much. There we see Zacchaeus knew and admitted he was a sinner, and he decided to turn from it. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So what do we see in Zacchaeus' attitude in this passage? How would you describe it? I see a humble, repentant heart. A humble, repentant person. Which again prepares the soil for true faith in Christ. And again, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. As we've been learning, if someone doesn't honestly admit they're a sinner, I mean honestly, you know in their heart, like, do you really believe you're a sinner? Or are you just saying you're a sinner because it's the right thing to say? If someone doesn't honestly admit they're a sinner, why would they ever turn from it and turn to the Savior? Why would they need a Savior? I can be my own Savior. I'm a good person. That's what they would say. So Zacchaeus turned. He knew. He knew the evil he was wrapped up in. And when Jesus looked him in the eye and told him to come down, he was like, forgiveness is possible. I can only imagine what was going through, on through in his, in his head, right? Someone would even forgive me, the chief tax collector? The worst of the worst? He turned from it and turned to the Savior. So we see repentance or a repentant attitude preceding faith. And they're very closely related things. 
but there's a humble attitude of readiness here in Zacchaeus. And as a result of this humble, repentant faith, we also see some fruit of it. Right in the same passage. When someone is changed by God, they are truly a new person. Zacchaeus realized the Lord was offering him forgiveness. And he just was overwhelmed, apparently. He says, I'll, I'll fix everything I've done wrong. I'll turn it around. Whatever you want, Lord. When someone's changed by God, they're truly a new person, and only goodness can result from that. We'll get to that a little bit later. But Zacchaeus' newfound goodness, the new nature that he now has through this surrendering faith he has towards Christ, it's seen in his great willingness to right his wrongs. Right there, fruit popping up because he's just overwhelmed. He accepted the offer of Christ, and his heart was changed. So we also heard from J. Vernon McGee, who reminded us uh, how good fruit is the evidence of a changed heart on the board in Luke 19. J. Vernon McGee says, By his fruit, talking about Zacchaeus, I know he has been converted. And friend, this is the only way the world will know that you are converted. They do not know it by testimony. They know it only by what they see in your life. This principle has come out a lot from the pulpit. How people are craving to see true humility, for example. They're they're craving to see true grace in action, true love even. They don't care what you say. There's way too many yappers out there that have lied to people, that have said one thing and done the other, right? So they care what they just, they want, they want to see. And you know what? This, again, this isn't something we can force. So don't think, you know, that's what we're talking about here. But as a result of true conversion, by faith in Christ alone as Lord and Savior, a person's heart is changed. And a person lives in the gospel. And what McGee's saying here, that's, that's what they're craving to see, is that it's real. It's real. And fruit does come from a changed heart, from a surrendered heart. It's what happens in your life when something supernatural has happened. From a humble, repentant turning to Christ as your Lord and Savior from that true thing, that honest thing in the soul between you and God, from that thing comes fruit. Not forced whatsoever. So I'd like to share with you a couple other passages that have been on my heart lately as wonderful examples of true salvation and what it looks like. And whenever we see someone's conversion in the scriptures, if we look carefully, we see a repentant attitude and even some type of resultant fruit from God changing them. All right? And let's just look at a couple examples, okay? And you can go home and think about other examples of people in the Scriptures that that come to Christ, that are converted, and see if you see these two things in the the picture. It might not even be uh, directly stated, but do you see a repentant attitude in somebody? Do you see some type of fruit on the other side of faith because of what they just receive from God. So, for example, uh, we we just saw Zacchaeus. 
Let's see the conversions of the thief on the cross and the Roman jailer this evening. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 23, verse 39. So again, when we see conversions in the scriptures, if we look carefully, we see a repentant attitude and some type of resultant fruit from God changing them. Luke 23, 39. Now this is one of the quickest conversions in the Bible. There's not much time here, folks. This guy's dying on a cross next to Jesus. And even though it looks so simple, what's going on, I think we see all three things that were mentioned. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, the other criminal, the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Are we indeed, or, or I'm sorry, and we indeed are suffering justly. Notice the word justly. He's acknowledging the justice of God even. And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Can you see his repentant heart there? It's a sign that the soil is ready. And he was saying in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Many believers will point to this passage and say, see, he was saved by faith alone. And I say, amen. But then I'd like to ask, why did he come to this beautiful faith we see here. What preceded it was a repentant attitude, contrary to the attitude of the other thief, who was just being arrogant. But this second thief had a repentant attitude. Again, two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. And I'm believing, as I read my Bible in context, that true faith doesn't exist without an attitude of repentance. That's what I personally believe. True faith doesn't exist without an attitude of repentance. And one other thing regarding this repentant thief. Not only do we see saving faith here, but we even see fruit from this thief who had no time left to live. His fruit was publicly acknowledging Jesus as Lord, even though he didn't use the word Lord. But he acknowledged Jesus had his kingdom coming, didn't he? He acknowledged Jesus had his kingdom coming. And all the people there heard his testimony. That's fruit, folks. That's beautiful fruit of a changed heart. Not something forced, not something manufactured. Because he repented of his own guilt towards God and, and surrendered to Christ in that moment. His heart was changed. It all came flowing out of him at once, really, that you can't even decipher. There was repentance, and there was faith, and there was fruit. It all happens in one sentence, really, in a moment of time. And that, again, is the supernatural nature of saving faith, right? It's a supernatural thing that God gives to somebody and produces in somebody. And it all came gushing out of this man at once.
But that's, what you, that's a result. That's the result of someone that truly has a repentant attitude. Not somebody that's perfect. Not someone that says, I vow to never sin again. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that. It's the attitude of, I'm guilty, Lord. I'm guilty. I can't save myself. Save me. And then that, that whole process. And then pfft, what happens with a grateful heart? What happens? What comes out of a grateful heart when someone really believes that they were doomed to condemnation and now they're saved by grace? What, what comes out of that heart? Nothing but good. So his fruit was publicly acknowledging Jesus as Lord, even though he didn't use the word Lord. And this all happened very quickly. But here we see a true conversion. So once again, we see a humble, repentant heart preceding saving faith and even some fruit as evidence of a changed heart. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 16, verse 25. And again, what happens when, you know, when God changes somebody's heart, and they really see the light of grace, they're so appreciative that they do good for the Lord. It's overflowing. I mean, I think we used this example in the past, but if someone pushed you out of the way of an oncoming bus, someone saved your life, you were dead. You were dead. And they pulled you out of it. What kind of gratitude do you have towards that person? So if you really believe Jesus saved you from eternal condemnation, if someone really believes that and really believes in him, what kind of attitude comes out of that person? Right? Look at Acts 16.25. We see a similar picture. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now is this man humble or what? It doesn't get much more humble than this. Trembling with fear, he just almost killed himself. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And remember, God will often use life's circumstances to bring someone to his knees. And now that soil is ready. He knows what's best for each person. But in this case, this man's soil is ready. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Now look what happened. Verse 33. And he, the jailer, took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So again, true conversion is accompanied by a repentant attitude. 
end revealed by some kind of fruit. You know, even though it's not always visible to us, okay? So I'm not saying it's always going to be visible to you and you're going to know you might not be there when they produce said fruit, right? Or it might be in their home with their family or whatever, but their life is changed because their heart is changed. And the jailer, look at his appreciative treatment of Paul and Silas. So, that was kind of a sidebar, but um, I wanted to share those passages because they've been on my heart uh, since Zacchaeus came up too. Hopefully seeing the whole picture um, and how intimately related these things are. So back to man recognizing God's sovereignty over him. Man recognizing God's sovereignty over him. This is key so that we don't stumble or make other people stumble. On the board, we saw this on Sunday. Why do some evangelists stumble? One of the primary reasons people reject the gospel is that they respect man's self-esteem over God's. As a result, they'd rather insult God's sovereignty than the sovereignty currently ruling an unbeliever's heart. Just think about that for a minute. Maybe it's because, you know, we're face-to-face -face with the unbeliever and we have to deal with that relationship and the repercussions. And we're not face-to-face -face with God right now, so maybe we don't feel so, whatever, pressured to say the right thing and kind of whisper in the ear and say, it's okay. You know, don't worry about the repentance part. Don't worry about God's sovereignty. Just do this, right? We want to we skip the, the difficult parts of the truth to satisfy some relationship with somebody? You know, are we here for ourselves or are we here for God? Are we here for our own relationships or for our own edification? Or are we here for God and His edification? We have to ask ourselves, because on the board, one of the primary reasons people reject the gospel is that they respect man's self-esteem over God's. As a result, they'd rather insult God's sovereignty than the sovereignty currently ruling an unbeliever's heart. That unbeliever that thinks he's in control of his own destiny, that, that guy. So we need to help people break down that little kingdom they've made of themselves. Because that's the state of most people's heart without Christ. They have their own little kingdom. They have their own little worship of self you know I'm not good at this like so and so but I'm good at this and this and this and that's where their security lies as though that's going to get them some, somewhere with God when the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but this person's got their own little kingdom that needs to be shattered and you can help do that even in gentleness but you can help do that and that needs to take place are we as evangelists trying to soften the truth to placate the unbeliever's emotions or self-esteem? We have to ask ourselves that. Am I doing a good job here? Am I doing it the way Christ would want me to do it? Am I presenting it properly, including the problem statement? So I know I've done it in the past, trying to, you know, quote-unquote, go easy, I guess, on, to satisfy somebody's emotions or self-esteem or keep a friendship. But it's a great disservice 
to that person who needs to know the truth. If we tiptoe around the fact that God is sovereign, just think about this. If we tiptoe around the fact that God is sovereign and you're not, we're not giving them a chance to have their soil readied for saving faith. They're not going to turn to Christ with all their heart to save them if they don't think they need to be saved. If we tiptoe around the fact that God is sovereign, we're not giving them a chance to have their soil readied. Only the truth is going to set people free, right? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Interesting why they say that before a witness testifies. Isn't that interesting? Why don't they just say you promise to tell the truth? No, no, no. Let's put you your back against the wall here. Are you willing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That's different, isn't it? Because we love to sneak in those little white lies as we tell the truth. So we're not totally on the hook for something. Or we won't have to face a negative response. Are you willing to tell the whole truth to people to set them free? Because they're not going to be set free unless you tell them the whole truth. And sometimes you're going to have backlash. Once in a while, you're going to have a person that says, thank you. Like from the heart, you can, you'll see their, their humility. You'll see their, the wake-up call they got. And they'll say, thank you for telling me the truth. I need to hear that. It hurt, but I need to hear that. And now their soil is possibly ready, possibly humble enough to honestly turn to Christ. That's the best thing we could do for somebody, right? Tell them the truth. But it's all about us. It's all about maintaining our comfort, maintaining a reputation. You know, we're such jerks, right? We're living in the flesh. So <laughs> maybe we all need to pray about this as evangelists, doing the Lord's work, and be like, Lord, get me out of the way. Why do I care if someone so likes me? I don't even like them. Why do I care if they like me? What's my problem? Don't we do that? We want everybody to like us. It doesn't mean go be, a, you know, act like a jerk and not care about people. But it means how can you not tell somebody the whole truth to save yourself, to save your reputation? You have a chance to set them free or help them be set free, but only if you tell them the truth. So, by the way, if someone contests that they're a sinner as you're telling them they're a sinner in whatever way God gives you, just go to the Ten Commandments, I believe. You know, have you, ever, have you kept all the Ten Commandments for your whole life, honestly? Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever stolen candy as a kid, ever? Ever. And if they say no, <laughs> you can walk away. They're not ready. But when they finally admit that they've at least broken one of God's commands, well, in God's eyes, you're guilty. In God's eyes, if you're not perfect, once you've sinned, you've sinned. And sin has to be judged, right? So give them that beautiful problem statement. It may be painful, but it's the truth. And it readies their soil. Again, this is so important because people will not truly turn to Christ and be converted unless they're first humbled before God. So pastor was reading a book entitled The Gospel According to Paul by John MacArthur, and he shared a quote with us on Sunday on the board regarding soteriology. 
Every lesson we can legitimately learn from biblical soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, points to the glory of God, not the self-esteem of the sinner. Every lesson we can legitimately learn from the doctrine of salvation in the Bible points to the glory of God, not the self-esteem of the sinner. We're not preserving the self-esteem of the sinner. We're preserving the glory of God and the sovereignty of God, His majesty. We shouldn't be worried about hurting the self-esteem of the sinner because, honestly, that's what he needs to be crushed. Until someone's little kingdom's kingdom is, is brought down, they're not going to see the need for Christ. We must tell the truth, and we can do it in kindness and love. Don't do it the fleshly way, which is brash, right? The flesh likes to react and call people a jerk, right? And like, you know, condemn somebody. That's not what we're talking about. But you can tell someone the truth and do it in love. Look at Christ. Look at all the examples in his life in the Gospels of telling the truth in love. But we can't skimp on the truth. The pride that people are holding on to must be confronted. Otherwise, they're going to cling to themselves as their own gods. They're not going to admit God's sovereignty and admit they need a Savior. As came out on Sunday, it's the Lord's gospel. Salvation isn't meant to accommodate the sensibilities of man. Rather, it's meant to accommodate the sovereign God of the universe. It's that simple. We're not, to, we're not to twist and turn the gospel to make it comfortable to people in our culture so they listen. What good is it if they listen and they get a half-truth and they don't really believe they need a Savior? Again, it's the Lord's gospel. Salvation isn't meant to accommodate the sensibilities of man. Rather, it's meant to accommodate the sovereign God of the universe. In other words, what does God say on the matter? It's not important what man says on the matter or thinks on the matter. What does God say in the matter? Tell the truth. Make that the issue when giving the gospel. As Pastor also mentioned on Sunday, we mustn't supplant sound doctrine with man-made doctrine, even involving the gospel itself. We mustn't supplant sound doctrine with man-made doctrine on the board. Man-made doctrine has an accommodating thread to it. This came out on Sunday. Man-made doctrine has an accommodating thread to it. That's one way we can recognize false doctrines. Does it accommodate man? Does it really not stick to exactly what the Scripture says? Does it add stuff in to accommodate man, to make man more comfortable, or to let people stay in their comfortable culture that they know? Or does it tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Very subtle, these accommodating threads that are woven into Bible verses. Trying to accommodate man's sensibilities to soften the blow in a way of God's justice and sovereignty. But that's insulting God in the process. So we have to avoid the temptation to soften the truth while giving the gospel. Why would you want to soften the truth? 
Think about it. Why would you want to soften the truth? Isn't that horrible? Like, if you soften the truth, that means you're um, <laughs> adjusting the truth to your liking and possibly changing it a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I don't want to offend somebody. Something to think about, right? And we're told to speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4.15. We've been through that. Speak the truth in love. The whole truth, not compromising the truth. You can speak the truth to somebody and still be kind, can't you? If you're in the new nature, you can. If you're filled with the Spirit, you can. You can speak the truth and still be kind. And that was kind of Christ in a nutshell. So... If we don't speak the whole truth, we're, we're hurting those who are listening to us. And we're insulting God's integrity in the process. So on the board, check your motivation. The human emotion that all be saved is often different than God's in the sense that it is absent of divine viewpoint on justice. God's grace is not accommodating to man's sensibilities. Rather, it is accommodating to God's sovereignty. So, on the board, as came out on Sunday, evangelize without apology. I love that. Evangelize without apology. You know, look at it objectively. Step back. If you're a soldier representing your, your, your land or your nation, and you get orders from above, the commander above you, to go do a job right, in a certain village, to even go talk to a certain people or a leader of a people. You better say what your commander told you to say, or you're misrepresenting your country, right? And you're misrepresenting your commander, and there will be repercussions. How much more in giving the gospel from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Evangelize without apology. I'm a soldier. I'm here to do a job. You don't have to be cold to people, but you can be objective and kind at the same time. I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't tell you the truth. And lay it on in gentleness and grace. And let God do the work. Evangelize without apology. I think we've been way too apologetic in evangelizing. I know I have in years past. So let the Spirit do the job. Tell the whole truth. Be a good soldier. Do what you're called to do. Many people reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ because they want to satisfy God on their own merits. And the worst thing you could do is enable somebody. Again, people reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ because they want to satisfy God on their own merits. If you leave that door open and you don't make it clear that they can't satisfy God on their own merits, you are letting them suffer in a lie. You're letting them stay in the trap. So think about it. You might ask, why does my friend reject the good news? It doesn't make any sense. I told him the good news. Why is he rejecting it? Ultimately, and they might not directly say this, it's because they want a piece of the action. They want a piece of credit in the equation. You know, I know God sent Jesus to pay for my sins, but I know if I do something too bad, we know how this goes, right? If I commit a sin that's too bad, 
you know, then I'm condemned. But, but I have not done those, so I'm, I'm okay on my own. Basically is what they say. Right? We know. They want to be able to take some credit, justifying themselves before God. And we're talking subtle religion stuff here, folks. Subtle religion stuff. Even after I was in the Word of God, my past religious life stuck in my head. And it was hard to drop. It still is hard to drop at times. Because it's pervasive. It's, it's, it's in the flesh. The flesh likes it. And so the flesh keeps lying to you. Keeps sneaking in those lies. So the worst thing we can do is enable somebody. To think it's okay to think that you're standing on your own two feet with God. Again, many people reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ because they want to satisfy God on their own merits. And this is why, as the Spirit gave us on Sunday, people reject biblical propitiation. They reject giving the Lord Jesus all the credit in satisfying God's justice. That's what they reject. They won't say those words, but that's what they reject. On the board, regarding propitiation, generically, we say that it means to placate an offended deity's wrath. Specifically, in Christianity, we say that God's wrath and righteousness are satisfied by the cross of Jesus Christ. This paves the way for the believer's justification. In other words, only Christ can satisfy God's righteous demands. You can't, unbeliever. Stop thinking you have 10% in the equation. Stop clinging to your own goodness. You need to admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God, period. You need to stop counting your own good deeds as something that God accepts, because he doesn't. So with that said, go to Romans 3.23. This is where we left off on Sunday. Let's just read a few verses here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. On Sunday, the Spirit emphasized that last phrase for sure that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It really is a mind-blowing perspective to receive, to think about the fact that God is and must be just, and at the same time, he's the justifier. It's all perspective, isn't it? I mean, we've read this verse before. Many of you have read this verse before. But stopping and pausing and just thinking about that, He's just, he's righteous, he's holy. He must judge sin. And yet he's the justifier of our guilt. It's supernatural. It's a supernatural reality from a truly loving God. 
And that's what often makes unbelievers stumble. It's too simple. It's too good to them. And ultimately, that's because their flesh wants to add some religion to it so they can take some credit. On the board, we saw the gospel paradox. Some will say, how can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin pay for the sin himself? Some people are too stubborn, too hard-headed to receive that type of goodness. They say it doesn't make sense, and they try to use their rationality to make sense of God's ways, which is obviously foolishness. How can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin pay for the sin himself? When you figure that out, you now understand what the grace of God is. Love that statement. Just dwell on that one question, and when you finally accept it as true, even though you don't understand it, you'll finally understand the, God, the grace of God. And once again, it's context that will help us understand this better. A pastor on Sunday asked us all to read Romans 3 as a whole so we can enjoy the tremendous grace of God in this passage. I did that as I'm sure most of you did. So let's expand this passage that we just read just a bit. Go back to verse 21. Romans 3.21 But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Stop there for a minute. Because of verse 23, verse 24 is the only way to be justified. Because all have sinned, the only way to be justified is as a gift by His grace. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now look at verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. There, my friends, is what the flesh hates. This came out a couple weeks ago. Where, where then is boasting? It is excluded. This is why many people reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And this bad thought process is found all over the area we live in because of the religious influence here, works-based religion. This could be cited as the main reason our neighbors and friends reject the gospel. It's because there's no boasting available to them if they fully accept Christ if they fully give him the credit he deserves. There's no boasting available to them. Only when someone is willing to admit that God is just and he alone is the justifier, it is only then that they can receive the faith required to be truly converted. Let me say that again. Just think about that. Only when someone is willing to admit that God is just and he alone is the justifier, 
It's only then that they can receive the faith required to truly be converted to Christ. It's only then that they will truly turn to Christ from the heart. Until then, they're going to remain trapped in the lie of religion. So again, on the board, the gospel paradox, some will say, how can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin pay for the sin himself? When you figure that out, you now understand what the grace of God is. We also saw this on Sunday. God solved the sin problem for us. He decided to become a man, Philippians 2, 7, and 8, so that our justification may come as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Again, it's because of verse 23, all have sinned, that the only way to be justified is verse 24, as a gift by His grace. It's the only possible way. God's 100% pure mercy. It's the only possible way, because you are guilty. And you can't pay for your own sin. If salvation is not received as a gift, then it is perceived as something that needs to be earned. If someone refuses to receive it as a pure gift, 100% gift, not Jesus on the side just in case I fail, in case I can't earn my way with God. If someone's not willing to accept salvation as a pure gift by God, as God alone justifying them, then they're going to perceive salvation as something that needs to be earned, at least in part. And the flesh loves that. A little piece of boasting. But all boasting belongs to the Lord because he did something that no man could or would ever do. Not dying for, for a good person, not dying for someone you love, dying for the guilty. Dying for the guilty even though you're innocent. So how can, it's amazing, how can the human race try to take away some of the credit from him? So again, God solved our sin problem by his own grace and mercy. And his love took action on our behalf. Again, on the board, as we close, God solved the sin problem for us. He decided to become a man so that our justification may come as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And it comes back to propitiation. The flesh wants to try to satisfy God on its own. But only the blood of Christ could truly satisfy God. Thus God took it upon himself to come save us and justify us. Let's read Romans 3, 25 and 26 one last time. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the perspective. The one who must judge sin chose to judge himself for the sins of his creation. Think about it. If he, if he compromises justice just a little bit, if he said, all right, I'm gonna, I don't have to judge sin, then he wouldn't have had to judge himself even. 
but he has to judge sin. And he chose to judge himself. He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Mind-blowing. The humble heart, the one that accepts this, their soil's ready. They admit their sin and their inability to pay on their own. That's the person that is going to finally understand the grace of God and truly turn to Christ in their heart. And we have the calling to go share this good news in truth and in love. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word, for your grace, for the guidance of your spirit. We ask that you help us bring these truths out to the lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. Help us, Father, tell the whole truth in love as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, and by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you.